This is Texas, and uh, football's a pretty big deal. If you're a Baylor Bears fan, this is a pretty good year for you. If you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, it's been a while, uh, and, I, and I feel your pain on that. Uh, I love football. I never played, but, um, but I enjoy watching it, and uh, it's my favorite sport. It's just very interesting to me. But you know what's interesting about football is that as popular as it is, and as big as it is, especially here in Texas and some other places, do you know that there is a sport around the world that is called football that is actually totally different? We call it soccer. But around the world, it's actually called football. And so imagine if you invited some of your uh, British friends over to play a game of football, and you and your guys showed up, and their guys showed up, and you got ready to play a game of football. What might that look like? Well, the, your British friends might be a little shocked by what was about to occur. See, they, they probably wouldn't have any pads on or, or a helmet or anything like that. And, and they would soon discover that there are some things legal in football, our football, that aren't necessarily legal in their football, like tackling or, or blitzing or, you know, things like that. And, uh, and it could get real dangerous real quick right? We'd be calling the same game the same thing, but in reality, there'd be two very different sets of rules. And when you call two things the same thing, but in reality, you're referring to two totally different things, it can cause major problems. And if that's true in sports, it is even more true when it comes to our relationship with God. And we're going to look at a passage today from the book of Isaiah in chapter 58, where God basically says, you're playing my game by the wrong rules. You think you know the playbook, but in reality, you've totally missed it, and you've actually missed it to such an extent that judgment is coming. And it's supposed to be kind of a wake-up call for them. We're starting a new series today, Hearts That Hunger for the Living God. You see, when, when you become a believer in Christ, a heart transformation takes place. And that, and that heart, you know, you, you're transformed. And it begins to reveal different things about yourself. And one of those things that's going to be revealed that Isaiah 58 talks a lot about is that those whose hearts have truly been transformed by Christ, they, they care for other people. They, they hurt for those who are hurting they, they live a life that sacrifices for others. That's just part of who they become once they're a follower of Christ. And the Israelites that Isaiah is speaking to have totally missed the boat on this. So let's look at this passage. We're going to look at, a, at uh, several things. In this, and the, the, you're, you're going to see some pretty, pretty strong words. From this, from this passage, some things that may shock you, uh, some elements of this that even in our day and time, it may come as a big surprise to us. You see, the prophets in, the, in ancient Israel, their job, what they, what they did was God chose them specifically to speak through them at times to the nation of Israel when they had totally gotten off course. That was their job. Uh, you know, the people of Israel, in a lot of ways, weren't that different from us today. Rather than comparing them, themselves and, and measuring their spiritual life by what God actually said and, and what following Him really looked like and what God was actually after, they tended to measure themselves by 
what other people around them were doing. You know, both in their own family and in their own nation and even in the nations around them. And this would get them in trouble time and time again because they would compare themselves to other people and think, hey, we're doing pretty good. They'd look at, at the law and the commands that, that God gave them and they would, they would try to follow them and they would even think, and you'll see this in this passage, they would think they were doing a pretty decent job of it. But what would happen, just as what can happen to us, is that they would lose the meaning behind it all. They would forget that these sacrifices and these fasts and these different things that they were called to do weren't done just, to, just as an exchange with God. You know, I'll do this so that God does that. No, they, they, that's the way they started thinking. They missed that God had actually given these things as reminders to them, to help them in their devotion to him, to build them up in their faith, and they had totally missed this. And so in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1, you see, him, you see Isaiah start out. He says, he says, Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgressions and to the house of Jacob their sins. When the prophet starts out a passage that way, it's not going to be good, Right? Nothing good is going to come from, from this in terms of, you know, God's not about to give you a little pat on the back. It's going to be serious. And the first thing that God's going to point out to him that God is upset about is that even though they are coming to him and even though they have a, a veneer of worshiping and following him, in reality, they're doing what he, he hates. God is actually going to reveal that he hates the way they're worshiping him. And we're like, well, how is that possible? How could we be worshiping God and God hate it? Well, let's, let's move on. Let's look at what he says. Look at verse 2. He says, and you have to understand, you know, this is text, you know, we don't get tone through this. So I'm going to try to read this with the tone with which it was intended, which is a little bit sarcastic, okay, uh, is the way this is meant. He says, yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my, my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forgotten the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? This is what the people are asking God. You see, they are so deceived, they actually think they're doing what God wants. And this is why this passage is going to come as such a shock to them, because they really believe they're, they're, they're playing the game by the right rules. But God says, no. In fact, your worship is self-centered. Now, before we can talk about this, let me give you just a little bit of background on, on what's going on here, especially the aspect of the fast that Isaiah is referring to. Because he says here that, you know, that you know, the people say, we have fasted, and you do not see. We've humbled ourselves, and you do not notice. What's going on here, what, what scholars seem to think, is that this particular passage is referring to the Day of Atonement. This day in, in the nation of Israel was extremely important. This was the one day of the year where the high priest was able to go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and offer a sacrifice that would cover the sins of the people. Okay? This was huge. And the nation was supposed to totally take this day off as a special Sabbath where they did not eat. They were to deny themselves. They were to, not, to do no work and spend the day, you know, thinking about their sin and the sacrifice that has been made on their behalf, represented by, you know, by the this, by this sheep. And so, 
And fasting, in general, is something that we don't actually talk a whole lot um, in, in evangelical circles. I think because you know, some other churches take it to certain extremes and do some unhealthy things with it. So we, sometimes we kind of overreact and we don't talk about this a whole lot. But what you need to know is that fasting is actually a normal part of following God. Old Testament, New Testament, it's always been a part of people who claim to be followers of the true God. You see this here, the Day of Atonement. You see this multiple times in the Old Testament. You see in the book of Judges, in Judges 20, 25 through 27, where the people come together for a special fast when, when they have sinned. We see King David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, and they had produced a child, and he'd killed uh, Bathsheba's husband. And Nathan the prophet confronts him in his sin. We see David truly repent of his sin and go into a time of deep prayer and fasting where he is imploring to God, seeking God, both in repentance and seeking to save the life of the child that they had, they had produced through their affair. We see this with Ezra and the people with Ezra after they've rebuilt the temple and they're getting ready to, to, to start using it again and getting all the priests and Levites lined up. You see them go into a time of fasting, seeking God's will. We see it with Nehemiah when he receives word that Jerusalem is still lying in ruins. Years after people have gone back, we see him pray and fast before going to the Persian king and asking for permission to go back and rebuild the walls. We see it with the Jews in the Persian Empire in the book of Esther that we just spent several weeks going through when they prayed and fasted when the word came down that Haman had gotten approval to destroy them all in one day. And they pray and they fast and they see God's face. We see it in Daniel. We see it with, with Jesus, you know, most famously with his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And, you know, there aren't a lot of things that are in our, all four Gospels. You know, the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ is one. Uh, the baptism and the, and, the, and the fasting is one of the few things that's in all of them because it's the beginning of his ministry. We see the church at Antioch fast when, before they send, decide who they're going to send out on, on, the, on a mission trip, and they choose Barnabas and Saul to go and start. Prayer and fasting with it was a regular, and it's intended to still be a regular part of a Christian's life. And fasting, put simply, it's a time of denying yourself food. Could be a meal, could be a day, could be three, three days, could be whatever. But it's a time of intensely seeking God. And by denying yourself food, it's a physical representation of the dependence that we truly have on Him. And it reminds you of that, and it leads you to a deeper devotion to him. That's its purpose. So, what were the Israelites doing with it? Well, you see from their words, God, hey, have you noticed we're, we're fasting and um, we're, we're not getting what we want? What's happening? Look how humble we are. God, do you not see how humble I am? And, hello, we're still things aren't working out the way we want. Their fasting, their worship, it was self-focused. It was all about what they could get from God. And, uh, and God's not impressed. And we can do the same thing today, you know, with our worship. We come to church and we put on our nice clothes and, and we show up and, and, and we should do these things, but it's so easy to be just like the people of Israel and forget 
why and to replace the motives that God gave the church to be a mutual encouragement to one another, to train each other, to meet each other's needs, and then to go out together into the world and accomplish His will in the world, spreading the gospel, you know, being the salt and light of the world, you know, meeting needs. You know, those things can get lost and we can just start, you know, just, it, it just start focusing on ourselves. Showing up to church just so we can see our friends. You know, showing up to church because that's what Christians are supposed to do and we kind of feel good about ourselves when we do it. We've done our, our kind of Christian thing for the week. You know, you know, we sing because we've been singing our entire lives and yet when we sing, maybe we don't necessarily think about who we're singing to and we don't think about the words that are coming out of our mouth. And we do it, maybe we just do it to feel good, put on a show, whatever impress a family member, impress a friend, and we can lose sight of why we're here. And God's, God hates it. That's not what He's looking for. And not only does He hate self-centered worship, but He also hates worship that doesn't result in a changed heart. You see, as I prayed a while ago, when... You know, whenever we come together, whether it's your small group or just one-on-one in discipleship or, you know, in youth ministry or children's ministry or in here, we should leave here challenged by the scriptures and encouraged by one another and, you know, motivated to go out into the world and do what God has called us to do. But oftentimes, way too often, our heart doesn't change. And we leave here the same as when we arrived. And, in fact... Many times we can go through this life with a heart that is so hard, there's virtually no difference between us and the culture around us. And Isaiah addresses this too. He continues on, he said, you know, after he says, you know, we have fasted, you do not, you know, they're asking, why have we fasted? You do not see it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not, not notice? Well, God's going to answer. And he says, behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and you drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. What's he talking about there? Well, on the Day of Atonement, it was supposed to be a day of fasting and denying of yourself. What, what does he say? On the Day of Fasting, you, you find your own desires. You're, you're not really sacrificing. You're not focusing on this. You're, you're, you're meeting your needs. And you're driving hard all your workers. You see, what they were doing was, you know, they would take, the ones who could, they would take the day off from work and they would fast, and they would do all the things they were supposed to do, but their workers, their servants, their slaves, the people that worked for them, they would make them keep working. In fact, they would give them extra hours to make up for the work that was being lost by them not working. And so their servants, the people that were supposed to be, you know, that they were all supposed to be observing this day of fasting and denying yourself and, and worship, the people that worked for them couldn't do it. And they were treating them actually more harshly on a day that was intended to be seeking God. And this may not correlate exactly to where we are in our, our culture. However, it is very possible to go into our lives, to go into our workplaces, to go into our schools, and be no different from the rest of the world, to not be changed by the intent of being a part of a church being a part of a community of faith. It's extremely possible for us to do and, and when God sees it, regardless of what our emotions may say, He's not going to be impressed by that. 
There's a saying that says, and I don't know who came up with it, but it's good, and said a difference that makes no difference is no difference. A difference that makes no difference is no difference. If calling yourselves a Christian, if I call myself a Christian, and I'm not different from the culture around me, then what's the point? And then he goes on to a third part of their worship that he hates. And it's actually related to the first, and that's their, their empty rituals. Again, they've lost purpose. He says, he says behold, uh, he, says, he says, you do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. They think they do, but Isaiah, you know, God is saying through Isaiah, you don't. And he asks them, is this a fast? Is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast? An acceptable day for, to the Lord? God says, is this what you think I want? Putting on a show, you know, they would put ashes on themselves, sackcloth, raggedy clothes, and they'd make a big show of it so that, you know, they'd want to make sure that everyone knew just how humble and just how, how serious they were taking this fast. And so, and so it, they looked the part, and God says, you think this is what I want? This is the fast? You think this is the fast I'm calling you to? You're going through the motions. But the heart isn't there. And then here comes the kicker. This is where God changes tunes, and he tells them exactly what he wants. Exactly what kind of fast he expects. Exactly what kind of worship and what kind of people he expects. The kind of people that they are not. And so we look at verses 6 through 10 here. He says, Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then... Your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will become like midday. So what is the heart that God desires? He tells them two, two big things. First, the fast that God wants, the heart that God wants, is one that cares about breaking oppression. Looking for injustice in the world and doing something about it. Partly, he, God is telling them that he wants their fast to result in this. And so it's possible that through the denying themselves of food, that through the extra resources, they may have more to give to, and to contribute towards some of these important issues. But more than that, I think he's, he's calling them that through their fasting, through their truly seeking God, it will result in a heart change that results in a life that wants to sacrifice for others, that cares about these issues, that is moved by the hurts of the world. And you know what? Christians have some shining examples throughout history where we have done this. 
and it is cool. You guys probably all know the story of William Wilberforce that made the movie Amazing Grace about him several years ago, who was a British politician who thought about going into the ministry because he, he felt like God was calling him to do something important, and a wise person finally pointed out to him that you could actually serve God in politics, and he, and he made it his life's mission to end slavery in England. And it took him 40 years, and he was dying when it happened. But he, but he did it. God used him. I don't know how many of you know how Sunday School got started. It looks very different today than how it originally got started. It started in the late 1700s. And in, in England. And during that time, child labor was prevalent. Uh, children could work up to 12 hours a day, six days a week. The only day they had off was Sunday. And when children worked six days a week, 12 hours a day, guess what happens to their education? Doesn't happen. What happens when you don't have education? You stay in poverty, right? You're stuck. And there was a guy named Robert Rakes who had the vision because of his faith, to bring kids into church on Sunday morning and use the scriptures to teach them, you know, the truths of scripture, morality, and teach them how to read and how to write and to get them an education so that they could spiritually and physically be broken out of this oppressive system. That's how Sunday school started. And it took off like a wildfire. And Christians got on board with this, and Christians were at the forefront of challenging the child labor laws and getting them overturned in country after country after country. In our country, uh, they're not so well known today, but there was a group called the Women's Christian Temperance Union, a group of Christian ladies who organized and thought it wasn't really all that fair that they didn't have the right to vote. And through their leadership, in large part through their leadership, that changed. And they did so as a result of their faith in God and realizing that they were called to change injustice, to break oppression. The civil rights movement of the 60s, led by Christians. Now, there were plenty of Christians on the other side that weren't doing such good things, but it was led by Christians. Breaking oppression is important to God. It's part of our faith. It's part of a heart that is changed by Him. And sometimes people do it through churches, sometimes it's through other organizations, sometimes it's through the law and government, but it's always done with the knowledge of who we are in Christ and what God expects of us in this world. Well, thankfully, today in the United States, we've got this all worked down. There's not anymore inequality or injustice, and we've got that all figured out. So we don't have to worry about this today, right? Everything's all hunky-dory. We're we're good, right? We've got it all, all worked out. Maybe not. There are still issues. And there are people that are doing things about it. Um, we have the CareNet, who is standing for the needs of those who can't speak for themselves, trying to stop and prevent abortion, the loss of life. And not only are they doing that, but they are caring for moms in these unexpected pregnancies who, are, who have disadvantages and and, and aren't able to handle a lot of things themselves. And they actually take these women 
and they share Christ with them, they mentor them, they train them, and they, and they provide for their needs up to a full year after that child is born. It's awesome. There's the International Justice Mission that works around the world, led by Christians, to end slavery that still exists around the world, and they take particular interest in sexual slavery. And around the world, you know, thousands of people have been set free through their efforts, through Christian lawyers, Christian social workers, Christian police officers, Christian politicians, who take a very non-traditional view of ministry. And yes, the very ministry that God cares about, breaking oppression. Here in Waco, we have have Mission Waco that's providing legal aid for people in poverty who may find themselves in, in, in bad situations and don't know how to respond, don't know how to help themselves, and they provide legal aid for them. They provide legal aid for, for ex-convicts. Um, you know, if, if you're convicted of a crime and that, and that appears on your record that, you, that after a certain number of years, that can actually be taken off your record, but it doesn't happen automatically. You actually have to pay to get it done. And depending on what, what, the, what the issue is, it can be several hundred to several thousand dollars. And Mission Waco actually has a, has a legal program to help ex-convicts get that off the record because we all know in our society with the job market that it is, if you've been convicted of a crime, you're probably not going to get hired. And so those who, who have made mistakes and even the ones who truly are trying to put their lives back together, oftentimes they can't until something like this comes along and helps them. We see job training opportunities for the poor. That, you know, that, that can help them get out of their situations. And, and we could go on and on and on. The point is, we don't always look for injustice, especially in the United States of America, but it does still exist. And it certainly exists around the world as well. And if our hearts are being changed, we're going to care about that. And related to that, he talks about caring for the needs of the poor. He says... He says, he talk, he, you know, in response to what kind of fast does he want, he says, is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide from your own flesh. Again, caring for the poor is something that has a long history of the people that, that, ser- people that consider themselves true worshipers of God. It's always been the case. If you look at Israel, in their, in their law that, that God gave them through Moses, caring for the poor and making sure that people were taken care of was a part of their law. It was built in. There were several aspects to it. We can't, there's no way to cover them all, but just, I'll just give you a few highlights. Every seven years, you were to forgive people's debts, regardless of what they owed. And it even specified, don't you dare be stingy the year before the seventh year. Okay? Because God cares about this. Every 50 years, there was the year of Jubilee where people who had sold themselves into slavery would be freed. Both of those measures, you know what they did? They prevented generational poverty. They prevented the cycle that so many get stuck in. They were required when they, when they gleaned their fields, when they, when, they, when they harvested, to leave the edges and the corners and the stuff they dropped, not to pick it up, so that the poor among them could go behind and gather some for themselves to use as food. They were required to do this. Every third year, all the people brought a tithe, a tenth of their produce, in order to support the Levites, the foreigners, the widows, and the orphans in the land. 
God was very concerned that they took care of those in need. That God's people will not be those who ignore the poor at their gates. And that's not the only time. You guys remember uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Real fun story. A few cities get nuked by God, okay? Get, get toasted. Um, you know why that happened? We have a word that comes from Sodom, sodomy. And oftentimes we think that that reason is the reason that God judged them. But you know what the, you know what the Bible actually says? You know, it actually gives the reason for what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. When Ezekiel 16, 48 through 50, he actually tells him. He says, he's talking to Israel, warning them not to be the same way. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Pretty scary. A few weeks ago, we were talking about this stuff with the junior high Sunday school class, and I, I gave them a list of sins. And I said, I want you guys to rank them in order of most important to least important. Yes, sin is sin to God, and yes, you know, it all condemns us you know, apart from salvation. But in terms of what you feel like is most important and what are the worst sins, you know, what are they? And so you know, we listed things like you know, murder and you know, lying to your parents and cheating on tests and uh, stealing and sexual sin and drug abuse and, and getting drunk. And we listed all these things, we listed 10 different things, and we had them divided into groups of three or four. And, and one of the items, one of the sins on there was ignoring the poor. And we had them rank them. And as you would expect, you know, working independently from, from each other, you know, the top two across the board were murder and sexual sin. They all said, these are the worst. And across the board, coming in at either 9 or number 10, was ignoring the poor. We think it's no big deal. We think that caring for the poor is some side thing. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good that, you know, we need to help people and, and that's all a good thing. But we treat it like a side issue. Like something that a few people can give their, their life to, and, but really, you know, our heart is, is evangelism or something like that. And that's true. Evangelism is critically important. But if you look at how Jesus ministered, he never separated that from helping physical needs. He never did. You go on through the Old Testament. Actually, go beyond the Old Testament. Maybe you look at the Old Testament passages like Ezekiel and Isaiah 15, and you're like, well, yeah, God is judging, and, and yeah, God's concerned about this, but today's different. Christ has come. We live in an era of grace, so things have changed, right? Maybe this is just an Old Testament thing. But then you have the passage in Matthew 25, the passage of the sheep and the goats, where it says that when the Son of Man comes returns in all his glory and brings the nations together and he separates the sheep on his, to his right and the goats to his left. And he tells them why he's separating them and why the, the goats are going off to eternal torment and the sheep are going to, uh, you know, to paradise. And he gives them the reason, and it's not at all what they expect. He says, you saw the hungry? You, know, you saw I was hungry? And you fed him. You saw I was thirsty? You gave me something to drink? Sick, 
You visited me in prison. You visited me naked. You clothed me. And the ones who did it will say, God, Jesus, we never saw you doing those things. Thanks, but I don't remember doing that. I don't remember ever seeing you in those situations. And he says, when you, didn't, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And the goats, just the opposite. You didn't do these things. You didn't do these things for me. And they, and they say, Lord, we never saw you. If we, you know, if we had, we certainly would have taken care of you. And Jesus said, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Later on, Jesus will talk about the, the greatest commandments, the two greatest commandments. He talks about it in, in Matthew 25, and then he talks about it again in, in Luke chapter, uh, let's see, 12 I think it is, if we can go to the, the next slide, um, in, in Luke chapter 10, and where a lawyer comes to him, or they're testing him, Matthew 20, you know, the, the Matthew and Luke give a slightly different account, but it's basically the same story, and Jesus is tested on what the, the most important commands are, or what he needs to do to get eternal life. And, and Jesus tells him, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your, your, you know, your strength, and with all your mind. And, and second is you love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer asks him, so who's my neighbor? And you know what comes next? The parable of the Good Samaritan, where the neighbor is the one that saw a guy who actually didn't live anywhere near him and who actually hated him, but he saw him lying on the road, and after the religious people that went through the motions, that had a self-centered faith, after they had all passed by, the Samaritan stopped, cleaned him up, took him to a place where he could get help, and continued to check on him after that. Responding to the needs of the poor always has been and always will be critical part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So, why don't we do this more? I mean, if this is such a big issue, then why is this not a bigger part of our faith? We can give lots of reasons, lots of excuses. Sometimes, you know, you know it's different for everybody. You know, in some ways, I think we have, sometimes we have like a prejudice against poor people. We think maybe it's it's their fault, or they made some bad choices, and, and that's why they're in the situation that they're in. A lot of times we'll quote uh, Paul in Second Thessalonians 3.10, where he says, Those who shall not work shall not eat. And, and that, you know, that's scripture, that's, that's true. And, and, uh, but we make two mistakes when we read that passage and apply it that way. One, Paul actually wasn't talking about poor people. He was talking about the community that was living there together. He was saying, if you're part of a community and you're not contributing, well, you, know, you don't get to share in, in the food. He wasn't actually making a reference to all poor people everywhere. However, that is true for poor people who, don't, who have no desire to work, that, you know, they aren't necessarily, you know, you know there, is con- there are consequences for that, and the Bible says a lot about being a sluggard and being lazy, and it's never good. However, a lot of times we assume that the poor are poor because they don't work, or because they're lazy, or because they don't care. When actually the reality is, is very, very different. I want to share with you just real quick what some of the reasons are for poverty. The number one reason in the United States of America, the single greatest common denominator of poverty in the, in the U.S. isn't lack of work. It's not lack of education. It's not, there's not racial issues. It's not the part of the country you live in. The single greatest factor is single parenthood. And I don't say that to 
for us to sit here in, in judgment of single parents, that's, actually, that's totally the opposite reaction you should have. The idea is that you help them and that you come alongside them and that you walk with them. You don't judge them. And that's, that's not the point. Obviously, education plays an important role. If you're not educated, it's hard to get a good job. Hard, you know, it's hard to do that. Um, poor medical care, you know, being sick, that contributes to a lot of poverty, and, and especially mental illness. Um, mental illness is a, is a big issue, and if you're mentally ill, a lot of times it's difficult to hold down a job. Um, you know, it, can, it, can, it can just cause havoc in your life and in your family. And Jimmy Dorrell, who's head of Mission Waco, he actually has a very interesting definition of, of poverty or what causes poor. And he, say, he says, the poor are those who like friends. Not just any friends, but network friends. There are many people who are in poverty because they don't know, they don't have anyone that they can really turn to, anyone who will walk with them through the hard issues. So, how are we doing? How's the state of Texas doing? with these issues. Where are we in this? Well, uh, he's in teen pregnancies, we're third highest in the nation. In, um, in education, we're 43rd. In access to affordable health care, we're 50. In funding of mental health care, we're actually 51. We're behind Washington, D.C. They counted all 51 there. Um, and the point of all this is that there's lots of needs here in Texas. It's a big, big problem. Um, you know, we could talk about giving patterns, and, but we, we need to wrap this up. The point is that the needs are great. And that in the Waco area, there are almost 400 churches, one of the most church areas in the country. The state poverty rate is 18%. The national poverty rate is 16%. But the city of Waco's poverty rate is 28%. And 6.7% is our unemployment, which means most of the poor are working. So it's not laziness that's causing it. And so we have to respond. Um, and I'm just going to brag on myself for a minute, if I can. I want to tell you something that I'm really, really good at. I'm really good at giving of my extra money. I'm really good at being generous with money that I have to spare after all the bills, after all the needs, after everything is taken care of. I'm real good with that. I, you know, a spare coat that my kids have outgrown, I can be real generous with that. And that's good. That's needed. However, God is looking for something more. David has this great quote where he says, I will not offer a sacrifice that has cost me nothing. God's looking for sacrifice. God's looking for changed hearts. He's looking for people that, that will go beyond just what they have to spare. The, the, the drama skit we just saw where the widow you know, came by and she dropped off her two miles. Remember what Jesus said there? He said, yeah, the widow gave all she had and that's why it was important. And the reason that the rich people, they gave all, their mo- all that money, the reason that wasn't important was because they gave out of their surplus, Jesus said. They gave out of what they had left over. It was a lot, but what God wants is the heart. And so what happens when we do this? What happens when we actually take this seriously? And we have his response here. 
He says, then your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness. Your gloom will become like midday. The Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. He'll give you strength in your bones, to your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. What happens when we open our hearts to correct worship and let that worship change our hearts so that we actually care about the needs of the poor and the oppressed in our midst, what happens? He guards our life. He guards our purposes. He says the Lord becomes our rear guard. He hears our prayers. Not that he never hears our prayers other, otherwise, but he becomes more responsive to them. And the reason he becomes more responsive to them is because we're actually praying for things that he cares about. We're actually connecting our hearts with his. He guides our steps because our steps are going towards Him. He satisfies our desires because our desires are coming from Him. Because we want what He wants. He strengthens your spirit. I mean, you may be in a time in your life where you're like, where you're like this, you're like, where is God? Why isn't He listening? And God would say, don't be self-focused. Make your life a service to others and see what God will do. And then what legacy do we leave as a result of this? If we actually do this and God responds, what happens? Well, if we have verse 12. He says, those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the old foundations and you will be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. God will use you to restore and that will be your reputation. We talk about leaving a legacy sometimes. We talk about leaving a legacy for our children. And we talk about leaving a legacy through discipleship. And that's all good and that's appropriate. We should absolutely do those things. But have you ever thought about what the church's legacy will be to the world? What will the evangelical church of 21st century Texas, what will their legacy be to Texas, to our society, to our culture? What difference will we make? Will that 28% poverty rate be impacted because of Christians? Will mental illness be addressed because of Christians? In the name of Christ, and in the hope of Christ, and, and in the total restoration and salvation of Christ. This is a huge part of our youth ministry. This is something we talk about a lot. This is why we take mission trips. This is why we do things like go to My Brother's Keeper next Sunday, or actually in two Sundays, we'll be going to Church Under the Bridge and, and, and uh, serving breakfast out there. And that's a big part of what we do these, these things is try to develop students into people who have a vision for this. And so when we talk about leaving a legacy, we want to leave a, a legacy to our culture. We, want, we also want to leave a legacy of kids whose heart beats for this and is driven by this and isn't preoccupied with just grades and sports and boyfriends and girlfriends. And I'm going to end this time actually bringing up one of, our, one of our students who really is getting this and who's been a joy to watch develop over these past few years, and that's Hannah Potolsky. Um, she, uh, she's a, an emerging leader in our, in our youth ministry, and, uh, and I've been, gotten to see her through mission trips and through service, all sorts of things, and this is her heart as well. And she's going to share with you what God's doing in, in her life. Um, I'm Hannah, um, and just a little bit about me. Um, I'm a sophomore, 
and I go to Midway High School. And I just wanted to share a bit of what the youth group means to me. Um, first of all, the youth group is a major part of my life. Um, God has done a lot to shape my heart through this youth group and the relationships that have been made. Um, the youth group is definitely a family um, where God has put amazing people in my life to encourage me and help develop my faith. Um, before I became a part of the youth group here, I did not live out the life of a, um, a Christian following what God wanted me to do. Um, but God used others in the youth group, leaders, and especially those that were older than me, to pour his love and knowledge into my life. And having an example of other believers around my age kind of living the life that God meant us to live um, and not conforming to the world is a huge blessing. Um, they're very encouraging and accepting, always there when I needed to talk or just had questions. And using these people, God drew me nearer to him. I feel that God will always continue to allow his love and spiritual gifts to be poured into me. But now I feel also called in the same way to pour back out what God has given me into the lives of others in the youth group, at school, and um, even to my younger siblings. God has used me to serve and pour out to others in our mission trip to New Mexico, um, the Big Sister, Little Sister program, and helping the people of West through our youth group service project there. Um, in Romans, Paul writes to the Roman church, his fellow believers in Christ, and says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And that is exactly what the youth group has been for me. Um, God has used the fellow believers of this youth group to keep me accountable, encourage me, build me up in my faith, and also just be really great friends. Let me pray for us. Father, just thank you for this good time, Lord. Thank you for this uh, just reminder from your scriptures of, of how we're supposed to care for the world. Lord, may we not be discouraged by the need or shrink back because of, of the challenges. Lord, may we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world and that there is nothing we can't do apart from you. That you've called us to something that is possible that is good and that is exciting to be a part of and that is to see people saved, see people come to a saving knowledge of you and to see them helped and healed process to see the world become less dark because of the impact of your followers and what an exciting opportunity that that is lord may may that be our heart's passion coming out of here today that we would figure out the the complex issues we wouldn't shrink back because it's hard or it's big or it's confusing but that we would learn and we would serve and god may you god, just guide us in in unity to do that and so we thank you in jesus name